The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 2 as we come to the end of a full week of uh, local outreach and celebrate our ninth anniversary as a church. We'll take a short break from the book of Daniel and remind ourselves of the great spiritual riches that belong to the church through Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Ephesians is a storehouse of spiritual riches. It puts the, the blessings of our spiritual salvation on exhibit. Uh, the main purpose of the book of Ephesians is not primarily to defend the doctrine of salvation, but to display the glorious riches of our salvation, and then exhort Christians to start making withdrawals from the bank. If, if all this is yours, you need to first bless God, and then you need to start living off of the rich resources that are yours in your salvation. And this really explains the structure of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is split right in half. Chapters 1 through 3 display the glorious riches of our salvation, and chapters 4 through 6 present us with the glorious responsibility of our salvation. So the glorious riches, chapters 1 through 3, the glorious responsibility in chapters 4 through 6. And in this first section of the epistle, chapters 1 through 3, it's clear that Paul wants to highlight the riches of the Christian salvation in all of its magnificent glory. Six times in the space of the first three chapters, Paul uses a form or a derivative of the Greek word plutos, uh, which means riches, wealth, abundance, fullness, plentitude. In chapter 1 and verse 7, if you follow with me, in verse, chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Drop down to verse 18. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And it goes on to talk about how we've been made alive. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. It says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And then we have this statement in chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And the idea that he's communicating here is that the spiritual benefits that we receive in our salvation are not just adequate, they're not just satisfactory, they're, they're benefits that we don't just receive like a, a livable wage from, but they are lavish, abundant, extravagant, more than all that we could ask or think is what's been provided to us in our salvation. And how do we enter into this 
spiritual wealth? How do we enter into these spiritual riches? You know, some people we know are, are born materially rich, right? You know, they, they have a lot because their, their parents have a lot. You know, people say they're, they're born with a silver spoon in their mouth. But does that work spiritually? Are, are we born into these spiritual riches? Were we born spiritually wealthy? Do we gain spiritual riches because of our natural birth? The answer is no. Our first parents blew it all. Adam and Eve lost it. The Bible lets us know how we're born spiritually. In chapter 2 and verse 3 of Ephesians, it says that we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In Psalm 51 verse 5, it says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We were not born naturally into spiritual riches. That's what some Jewish people still believe today. You know, that just because of their birth, how they were born, that they're automatically connected to God. You know, our, our father is Abraham. You know, we call Abraham our father. But your first father was still Adam. <laughs> and since Adam, we're all born into sin. We're, we're not born into spiritual wealth. So can we work our way into spiritual riches? You know, we have those success stories of people who, who work their way into riches. You know, fortune, following, hard work, and diligence. So can you work your way? into spiritual riches. What does the Bible say about that? Ephesians 2.9 says, the spiritual riches of our salvation are not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You, you cannot work your way into the favor of God. In Luke chapter 10, there was a religious leader who asked Jesus the important question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a, that's a great question. Because... There is an eternity, and we all will die. <laughs> so how do I know that, that I, after death, will enter into this eternal life? And the way that Jesus responds seems strange at first. You know, we might expect Jesus to say something like, you know, well, follow me, or believe in me, and you'll inherit these spiritual riches. You know, you can enter into eternal life if you trust in me. You know, that's what Jesus said in John 6. You know, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. But that's not how he responds to this lawyer who comes to ask Jesus a question. What Jesus says is, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And the man answered, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. What Jesus was actually trying to show this man by having him rehearse the law is that there is no hope for you to do that and live. <laughs> do this and live. If you can really love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you can do that, you can have spiritual riches. You can enter into eternal life if you can accomplish that. But you cannot work your way into spiritual riches. He was trying to show this man that he was deficient, that you can't get there from here. You, you, you don't have enough to be able to present before God to enter into eternal life. You have to look for another way. Just like if somebody came to me and said, you know, how can I get to Johannesburg, South Africa? And I pointed to the Atlantic Ocean and said, it's only about 8,000 miles if you're a good swimmer. There's nowhere to get there from here. You need another option. You need another mode of transportation. You can't get there on your own strength. We cannot work our way into spiritual riches. The spiritual riches that we have are not as a result of works. And then there's some people who stumble into riches, right? You know, they're not looking for it. They just kind of, you know, strike it rich, come across it by accident, you know, some rare find. 
You know, they discover uh, some valuable resource like oil or gold that's been sitting right underneath their nose this whole time. You know, some rare heirloom that they had. They didn't know how much it was worth. But Ephesians lets us know that we are completely cut off from any kind of spiritual discovery on our own. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were spiritually homeless, helpless, hopeless, and godless. Without hope and without God in the world. And more than that, we were lifeless. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, and you were what? Dead. That is your spiritual state apart from the grace of God. If God does not act upon you, that's the state that you will remain in. Spiritually dead. No way to access the riches that Ephesians speaks about. Unconverted, unchanged, with no ability to access any of the blessings of God. Something has to happen to you in order for you to benefit from the riches of God. I was reminded of this when I was in Ecuador not too long ago. I saw a a recreation of this ancient burial site uh, where they would bury their ancient kings uh, down in a pit. They dig a pit, put their, their king down there after he, were, after he died. They put their king down there, and they'd bury him with containers of food. They'd bury him with containers of, of gold, money, you know, have riches down there for the king. And then they'd also do this. They would also poison his wife and bury his wife with him. So then in the afterlife, you know, he had some company, you know, had his wife with him in the afterlife. So he'd have a container of food, container of money, and he'd have his spouse. And if the, the poison didn't work for the wife, she'd have a rude awakening because she'd wake up buried next to a dead body. All of that they would do to try to give some kind of access to their king after he died to some kind of riches. But the truth is that he had access to none of that, right? Here he is buried next to all these riches, and he can't even access them. Why? Because he's dead, <laughs> He's dead. Where where are we spiritually? We are dead. We have no ability to access any of the riches, even if they're right next to us. We have no no opportunity to reach out. Dead men tell no tales, and neither do they access bank accounts. (laughs) They, They can't access any riches. We're totally cut off from the riches of God. That's how we are, spiritually dead. We have absolutely no hope of entering the bounty and blessings of God unless God does something for you, unless God acts upon you. You need to be born again. You need spiritual life. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it's all one sentence in the Greek. The doctrine of conversion, spiritual resurrection, is explained to us. And uh, we'll have to come back to this section at some time to mine out all the gems that are here. But for today... I just want to give you the big picture, okay? Just a big overview of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So in verses 1 through 3, we're told of our past condition. We were converted from a state of spiritual death. In uh, verses 4 to 6, we're told about our present position in Christ. You're converted to a heavenly life. You have a new life now. And in verses 7 to 10, we're told of our future glorification and sanctification. You were converted for eternal grace and also to live a changed life even now. So let's take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 10. And uh, 
don't worry, you have lunch for you after you leave here, okay? So just, just calm down, all right? Ephesians 2, we'll start at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, love that, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this Sunday as we do every Sunday, asking for your help, for your blessing. Lord, that you would open up to us the scriptures, that we may behold wonderful things through your law. My Father, I pray that if there are any here today who do not know Jesus Christ, Lord, that today would be the day that they would be raised to life, that she would bring life, a spiritual resurrection, that it would take place even today. My Father, we know that only you can do this work through the preaching of your word, God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, Father, I pray that under the preaching of the word that they might have life, and uh, that you would help us as we behold these wonderful things, that we would rejoice, and that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, what is our past condition? What is our past condition? The Bible describes it there in verse one. You were dead. And the kind of death that's being spoken of here is defined for us by the terms trespasses and sins. What, what kind of death were you in? You were in a, a spiritual death, a sinful kind of death. The word for trespasses or transgressions is the word paroptima in the Greek. It means to cross the boundary. You've gone over the line. God draws a line. He says, stop right here. And we say, no, I'm going beyond the line. God says, these are the boundaries. Stay within here. We say, nope, I'm going outside the boundaries. God says, this is the tree that you're not to eat. And we say, you know what? That's the tree that I am going to eat. That's what we do. We go beyond the lines, go beyond the boundaries. He erects the fence. We hop the fence. We climb over the fence. We're trespassers. That's who we are, sinners in the sight of God, trespassers. The word for sin is hamartia. It's a word that means to miss the mark, to come short of the mark. God's standard is perfection, and we fall short of perfections. Actually, instead of aiming towards perfection, we're aiming in the other way. We've got our bow and arrow trying to aim in the other direction. God says, this is the mark of perfection. We say, we're going to come short of that. We're going to turn the other direction from that. We can't reach it even if we tried. So many of the world's religions are trying to, to hit the mark of perfection. But they're, 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 the string on their bow is broke. <laughs> they, they can't do it. How, how can I reach the, the standard of God's perfection? We fall short of it. And either term by itself, trespasses or sins, would have made the point But here he places both of them next to one another to say that 
you fall short of it and you go beyond it. In every direction, you, you, you don't match what God has set out as the, the standard of perfection. You cross the boundary and you fall short of the mark. And on top of that, it's in the plural form here. Trespasses and sins. Multiple. Why, why does it speak about it in the plural? Because there are, are multiple ways that we fall short. There are multiple ways that we miss the mark. There are multiple ways that we cross the boundary. And that's the condition that you're found in. Spiritual death, across the boundary, short of the mark. This is the condition that we're born in. It's tragic. Our condition might be covered up by, you know, the apparent signs of of life and health. You know, many people walk around as if they're happy and they're whole and everything's together. But this is the condition that they live in. Zombies, the walking dead. And this is how we're born into the world. It's our natural condition. When Adam fell in the garden, he died spiritually on that day. And not only did he die, but everybody who was born after him was born dead. The entire human stream from that point on was born into a state of spiritual death. And there was no hope of being born outside of this. Everybody's contaminated by this. He could not produce a child that was free from the disease. Romans 5.18 says, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Romans 5.19 says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. And the proof that we're all infected by the same disease, all contaminated by spiritual death, is that one day what's true of us spiritually will happen to us physically. If, if you want to ask the question, am I really spiritual, spiritually dead? Just ask yourself the question, am I one day going to physically die? Because that is proof that you are spiritually dead, that you've been contaminated with the disease. Through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin So death spread to all men because all sinned. So when you look at the Genesis record, the genealogy, you know, he lived, he begat, he died. He lived, he begat, he died. He lived, he had a son, and that son died. And the cycle repeats over and over and over again because the disease had firmly taken root. Even David properly diagnosed the infection when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And the objection that's raised for that is, that's not fair. That's not fair that that Adam makes a choice and that we all suffer for Adam's sin. We would have been better off without Adam. Well, it could have been your name in the place instead of Adam's name. You know, we would have been cursing you, right? We're sinners by birth, but we're also sinners by choice because you make the same choices that Adam did. You want to do any better than, than Adam? You know, the sins that you commit, did anybody force you to commit those sins? The lies that you told, the times that you lusted in your heart, the times that you were angry. Did, did anybody force you to do that or did you do that willingly? We, we don't go kicking and screaming down the path of temptation. You know, we go skipping along the path to temptation. That, that's where we are. We're, we're in the realm of spiritual death and we're willing participants. We willingly participate in this. And there's three clear and unmistakable signs of our spiritual decay In this first section, number one, there's the world that we walked in. Look at verse two. In which, speaking about these sins, in which he formerly walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world is literally the age of this world. Speaks of our godlessness that dominates the present world system. 
a system that's hostile to its true Lord and King. When it's speaking about the course of this world, it's not just, you know, talking about, uh, you know, watching a beautiful sunset and, you know, the, the greenery or whatever else. It's not talking about the people who live on the world. It's talking about the, the godlessness, the, the anti-God system. This is the, the world that we live in, and we choose it freely. The Bible says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If, the, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2 and verse 15. The love of the world is talking about loving the, the world that is in opposition to God. That We love that. Actually, you know, it's like the, you know, you, you root for the, the, the bad guys. It's like there's something attractive about the bad guys. Well, why is that? Why, 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 do you, why do you like, you know, there's just like a certain smile that comes across your face when somebody just lets them have it. Oh, yeah, that, that just stick it to them. That, that's what I w- would have wanted to do. Like, there's something inside of us that just wants it to happen. Why, why is that? It's, it's the present world that we live in. The things of the world, the system of the world, the anti-God system that we live in. And there's something that's attractive about that to the world. Second, there's the prince that we follow. Look at verse 2 again. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. There is the prince that we follow. The world that we walked in and the prince that we followed. Literally, the, the word for prince is ruler. The ruler of this age. In chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 12, speaks about ruler in this way. Also speaks about the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This world is governed over, at least the, 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 the worldly system is governed over by, by Satan himself. John eight forty four says, you are of your father, the devil. The, the devil is operating. Jesus refers to him as a ruler, as a prince. And prior to our conversion, this is the person that we gave our allegiance to. You might not have known that. You might not have known that you were following after Satan, but this is what the Bible says. Prior to our conversion, we lived captive to his sway and oblivious for the most part that we were even called his children. But that's what we were, children of the devil, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the children of disobedience. Look at verse 3. There's also the lust that we lived in. Look at verse 3. Among them, these sons of disobedience, those who can be characterized by disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's the lust that we lived in. Literally, that's, that's where, we, where we turned around. That, that's, 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 that, that was what encompassed us. We moved around in it. We never moved out of it. We moved around in it. This was our address. You know, when you want to find us, this is where we could be found. What we desired, we did. What we thought, we did. And because of our sins, we were by nature destined for wrath. And nobody born into this world escapes this sentence. This is how you're born. Spiritually dead. Indulging your desires. You know, the word for lust just speaks about desires. Sinful desires, this is what we, what we long for. And you might not have noticed this, but there's a slight shift that occurred between verses 1 and verse 3. Verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, it speaks in the second person plural. You were dead. Your trespasses and sin. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked. But by the time Paul gets to verse 3, what does he say? Among them, we too all formerly lived. In the lust of our flesh, 
It's in the first person plural. He's, he's including himself in this group. Me too. This, this is where we live. This is, this is how we walked. Nobody escapes this sentence. Jews just as well as the Gentiles. We too, even as the rest. And this is the same argument that Paul makes in Romans 1 through 3 where he speaks about the Gentiles being sinners. And then he turns around and says, but the Jews are too. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he says, are we better than them? What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And as a Christian, that is your past, right? That's your past. That's how you used to live. But if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I I, I want to tell you and I want to warn you that this is your present. For an unbeliever, this this is where I currently live. I'm currently in a state of death. I'm currently giving myself over to the lust of the flesh. I'm currently living underneath the prince of the power of the air. This is where I live now. And this is hopeless. Why? Because I'm dead in it. I can't get out of it. Like, what does a dead man do? A dead man can't get up. A dead man can't work. A dead man can't change his direction. You're dead in it. And this is the state that we're all born in, dead in our transgressions and our sins, held by the puppet master Satan, the prince of this world. You may have freedom to move around in your lust, but you don't have the freedom to move out of it. That's your predicament, and the only hope that any of us have is that somebody has to come from the outside and save us. There there will be no salvation from the inside. I was speaking this week with uh, somebody uh, who said they believed in reincarnation. I said, well, that's hopeless, (laughs) because every time you come back, you're going to come back as a sinner. You you can't get out of it. There is no hope like that. You're still spiritually dead. Every time you'd come back, you'd be born spiritually dead. We need some, some, some solution from the outside. And that's what God provides for us. The Bible lets us know that there are certain things that we cannot do. Just really quick. Scripture speaks about this all over the place. But, but there's the cannots of Scripture. <laughs> cannots, things that you cannot do. Matthew seven eighteen: a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. John 3, 3, unless a man is born from above, he cannot See the kingdom of God. John 3, 5, unless a man is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 6, 65, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John 14, 17, the world cannot accept the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. John 8, 43, why do you not understand that I am saying what I am saying, it is because you cannot hear my word. Remarkable. John 8, 7, Romans 8, 7. The sinful mind does not submit to the, the law of God, nor can it do so. Cannot. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. 1 Corinthians two fourteen. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You cannot. Revelation 14, 3, no one could learn the song except those who had been redeemed from the earth. There are certain things you just can't do. As an unbeliever, there are certain things that you just can't hear. Can't hear it, can't see it, you can't change it, 
cannot. Something has to happen from the outside to enable you to hear, to, to create life in you. That had to happen from the outside. What happened? Look at verse 4. This, this is the turn in the, the text, isn't it? But God. Don't you love that statement? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the thought that was started in verse 1 is finally completed. In verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. But God. Prior to conversion, we were alienated from God. No way to access spiritual life. We were in the realm of spiritual death. We needed somebody with life in himself who could come and grant us life. We couldn't be granted life from from spiritually dead people. We needed somebody from the outside who actually could bring life into this dead world. And that's what Jesus Christ did. In John 5, verse 26, it says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and Jesus becomes our life. And right now, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ in a very real sense, Jesus' life has become your life. He's brought to you life. Often you'll find in, uh, in Scripture, uh, it'll have this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And the phrase points to the true location of believers that we're now found in Him, that we're, we've been given life through Him. Theologians speak about this as the, the mystical union. You know, it's like you can't get your arms fully around it, that I am now in Christ, that my life is His life. Galatians 2.20, Paul didn't understand it either. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I've been crucified, but I live, but not me, but it's Christ. But like, like somehow it all works. <laughs> I'm in Christ and I've been given life. Paul repeats the same idea in Colossians 3. In verse 3 he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. It, 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 you, you can't see it, but it's, it's been attached to Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Our our true life can't be seen right now if you're a believer because our true life is in Jesus Christ. And this is where we move and breathe and have our being. We're we're found in Jesus Christ. But we're also raised with him. Look again in chapter 2, verse 6. We've been made alive, alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him. We've been made alive and we've been raised up with Jesus Christ. This can refer to our our resurrection, but also can point to our exaltation, our our glorification. We've been raised with him. And there's a sense in which that's true for for those of us who are believers right now, that we've been raised up with Christ, given new life in Jesus Christ. And there's coming a day when that invisible life that's been raised up will be physically raised up as well. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. That the power that God used to raise Jesus Christ with is the same power that he uses in our lives. Isn't that incredible? Look back at uh, Ephesians chapter 1 just real quick. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 
18. Look at what Paul says. Because this is something that you can't see. You have to you see it with the eyes of faith. Verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with, listen to this, with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do do, do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, I'm praying that the, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you could see that what has happened to Christ has also happened to you. He's been raised and you've been raised. He's been raised to life. You've been raised to life. He's seated in the heavenly places and you too are seated in the heavenly places. You're with him. You're connected with him. You've been raised up with him. And through faith, we we trust in the work of Jesus Christ that that he can give life where we can't. And as Lightfoot puts it in his commentary, he says, the world which persecutes, despises, and ignores us now will then be blinded by the dazzling glory of the revelation of the children of God, that that we are seated in a real sense with Christ. That's the third thing that's spoken of here. Been given life, we've been raised up, you know, and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, where Christ is far above all rule and authority. And this would have been important for a, a city like Ephesus that was steeped in occultic practices in Acts chapter 19, we learned that uh, demonic possession was common in Ephesus. There were actually uh, seven sons of a man named Sceva who attempted to cast out spirits by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. It's not a good idea to try to, you know, address a demon by the Jesus whom somebody else preaches. But this is what they did. And uh, the demons in that man said, uh, you know, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who are you? And they jumped on that man and left and stripped him naked. He ran out naked. You know, it's, it's not a Jesus whom somebody else preaches. It should be a Jesus that you know. It would have been important for a place like Ephesus to know that, that the Lord that you serve is over every demonic force. That, that there, is, there is nobody who is greater than your God. And if you're found in Christ, that you also are seated with him. Above all the, the demons and rulers of this age. We don't have to, to fear Satan. You know, we, we go out, we share the gospel, you know, and we can do that with boldness. Why? Because I know that greater is he who is within me than he who is in the world. <laughs> I don't have to fear sharing the gospel because of that, because of what a, a demon might want to do. They have no power over us as believers. They need to know that there's a power superior and that you are found in Jesus Christ and seated with him. And then third and, and finally we find in verse 7, we're told that we're Converted for a future glorification and sanctification as well. Look at verse 7. It says, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The kind of salvation that we enjoy is not deserved. We're not born into it. We don't stumble into it. It's given to us as this gift of grace, right? Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You may not realize this now, but in heaven, you will forever be a trophy of God's grace. 
that every time somebody looks at you, they'll immediately look at Jesus and say, I know that, that Jesus is the only reason that he's here. <laughs> like, it's because of his grace that you've shown up. <laughs> You'll be able to look at yourself and say the same thing. It's only because of his grace that I'm here. We'll forever be an example of the grace of God, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And even in a sinless state, when we're glorified, when we're in heaven, when we're in his presence, we'll always be there because of grace. There will never come a time when you can credit something else besides the grace of God for your presence in heaven. Even after you're there in sinless perfection, it will always be because of the grace of God. We'll forever be singing the, the, the marvelous grace of God. You know, like, like the, 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 the hymn Amazing Grace says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Forever in eternity, we'll always be singing of the grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The only reason that I'm here is because of the grace of God. That's why we enter into this, the riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Verse 8, you've been saved by grace. By grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Saved. Saved from what? We're saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. And we're saved by grace undeserved, and it's through faith. That's, that's the channel that you're saved through. That's what connects you to the grace of God. That's what connects you to the, the riches of God. It's through faith. It's not through our works. I mean, the Bible's already clear about that. It's not of ourselves, and it's not through works. It's through our faith because we trust in him. And why, why it's of faith and only of faith is because it's only of Christ. So the way that we connect to the work of Christ is only through faith. We trust in him. Because he's the one that gets us into heaven. Real quick, uh, flip over to Romans chapter 4. A parallel passage to this. Romans chapter 4. Take a look at verse 4. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 4. It says, Now to the one who works. And there's many religions that are out there trying to work for their salvation. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. The word favor is the same word for grace or gift that's used back in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and verse 8. And it says to the one who works, what you receive is not a favor, but it's what's due you. If I, if I work for a, a job, you know, 9 to 5, 40 hours a week, and they gave me a paycheck at the end of that week, and they say, hey, here, here's this gift for you. I, we'd like to share this gift with you. What, what do you mean a gift? I worked for this, and you should actually pay me more, right? I, I don't receive it as a gift. It's what's due me. You owe me this. If there was anything that we could offer to say that, that somehow there's something that we've contributed to our salvation, it would no longer be a gift. It would be something that we're due. Like, like God owes me this. I was speaking to one uh, gentleman even this week, and you know, he talked about you know, how baptism is, is part of our salvation. I said, so, and I, I use this illustration often, it's like if I'm on an operating table, I'm about to go into the to the ER, you know, going to the to surgery, and uh, I see you, and I say, hey, you know, I'm about to go into the surgery. If they're giving me a 30% chance at life. I have no idea if I'm going to make it out alive. Is there any hope that you can give me? You said, yeah, you need to be baptized. I said, that's no hope. <laughs> what hope is that? 
Like, is that seriously what you're going to tell somebody? That, that you have, there's something that has to be done to you in order for you to enter into eternal life? You have to be baptized, or you have to go to the church, you have to, you know, start living according to the commands of God, and that's what, what he said. You know, you got to be baptized, and you got to start being obedient. I, I have no time to be baptized and start to be obedient. What do you think the thief on the cross did? All he did is he turned to, to the Lord, and he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. His hands were, were nailed. I can't, I can't lift my hands and do anything. His feet were nailed. He couldn't get up and go anywhere. All he could do was turn to the Lord with the, with the, the eyes of faith. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that there's nothing that I could do. I know I'm here because I deserve it. I know that you're the king because you have the kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He also told the other thief that this man is good. He's done nothing wrong. He, he understood that Jesus was sinless. You have to understand who you are, who Jesus is, and you trust in him by faith. It's nothing of yourself or else you would deserve it. I think that was an amen back there. (laughs) Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. But look at verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. We're declared innocent in 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 the sight of God. The ungodly are declared innocent in the sight of God. How? Through faith. Through faith. His faith is credited as righteousness. Here's two thoughts I want you to capture just really quick. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. If if God is compelled to give you grace because of something that you've done, you know, you've gone to communion, you've gone to confession, you've done your last rites or whatever else it might be, you know, and God is compelled to give you grace because of what you've done. It ceases to be grace. It's no longer grace. There's something that you've done to get that, to receive that. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. Grace also ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. So as a believer, when we sin... God says, oh, well, that's, that's enough grace for you. you, don't, you don't, I'm putting that back in my pocket. You don't get none of that. If, if God is compelled to withdraw his grace from you because of your sin, then it's not grace. It's not grace. Our salvation is by faith, and it's by faith alone. And this is what we're told throughout Scripture. We're justified, declared innocent in the sight of God because of faith. And why is it because of faith? It's because it's of Christ. Back in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, like I said, there's so, so much more that we could share, but we, uh, we ran the fire hose for a while today, so we're going we're gonna to cut the fire hose off. So much more that we could say here, but just really quick before we leave this, there's a debate here as to, to what exactly is Paul pointing to when he says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And people look at this and say, well, what, what is it that is the gift of God? Is it the, the grace that's the gift of God? Is it the salvation that's the gift of God? Is it the faith that's the gift of God? I'll tell you what the answer is. It's all of it. <laughs> all of it is the gift of God. You're, you're, the grace that you receive is the gift. The faith that you receive is a gift. The salvation that you receive is a gift. It is the gift of God. None of it is a result of works so that no one can boast. And forever will be trophies of his grace in heaven 
verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this is where the good work shows up. After you've been made new, you've been created anew, all who are in Christ are new creation, right? You've been made new. Because of trusting in Jesus Christ, he's, he's given you eternal life, given you a new life. You've been raised up with him. You've been made alive. And now that you've been made alive, now God prepares you for good works. You've been created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The, the works that we live in today, it's not in order to gain the grace of God. It's not in order to gain salvation. We're not adding anything to the work of Jesus Christ. That work is finished. When Jesus Christ hung, hung his head, he says, it is finished. All the work that's necessary to be done for your salvation has already been done. But now that you've been created anew, now that you've been given a new life, now God expects you to get to work, <laughs> to live for him, to, 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 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that we've been now created with the purpose that we would walk in the good works that God has given for us to do. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't need to continue to walk in spiritual death. You, you, you don't need to die in your sins. You don't need to, to continue to live underneath the, 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 the present world system, being controlled by the, the prince of, of darkness, the ruler of this age. You don't have to live like that anymore. There's somebody who's come from the outside, and that person who's come from the outside came with life. <laughs> In a world that, that people were born and died and born and died and born and died, and everybody who was born was born with that same condition of spiritual death, there was somebody who came from the outside who says, I have life in myself, and I can give life to whomever I wish. And those who receive that life are those who turn to Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith and say, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I know that I've lived my life against you. I know that I've lived my life for the, the lust of my flesh, the lust of my eyes, the, the prideful desires of this life. And Father, I, I turn to you and I, and I give my life to you. And I trust in the satisfaction of Jesus Christ on my behalf, the one who lived the life that I could not live, the one who died as a substitute on the cross, bearing upon himself the sins of the world for all who would believe and trust in him. I give my life to him. And because of that, we've been introduced into the great spiritual riches of our salvation. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had in your word. Uh, Father, even briefly as an overview to think about the riches of salvation that have been given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, it's nothing that we can offer. There's nothing that we can do. Uh, Father, it's only trusting in you. There's no work that we can contribute to our salvation. If there's anybody here who's trusting in a work, Lord, uh, they're, they're trusting in something that cannot save them. Oh, but Father, we're grateful that we trust in the Lord who can save, who does save, and who offers eternal life to all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him for eternity. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.